So let's just remind ourselves of the concept of our evening series. Jesus is the most extraordinary, the most important, the most loving person in the history of the world. And we want people to get to know him. To be in a relationship with this Jesus is the most exciting thing in our lives. And having discovered him to be our saviour and Lord, our heart's desire is for others to come to know him for themselves. Now this task of sharing the good news about Jesus with other people is what we commonly refer to as evangelism. And in the Bible there are some instructions on how we are to go about this. First of all, God called and equipped specific men and women to be evangelists or sharers of the gospel. And their task is to seize boldly every opportunity that comes their way to speak about who Jesus is and what he has done. And these men and women are often very convincing, very articulate, very confident, they're good speakers, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But then alongside the evangelists are the rest of us. We may not feel very confident or articulate. We may not feel like we're good speakers at all. Yet we still have a contribution to make. We are to live surprising lives. Lives that raise questions. People are to look at us and think, why do they behave like that? Why do they spend so much time helping other people? Why do they remain hopeful in this time of tragedy? Where does their joy come from? You see, when people see us living intriguing lives, they'll want to know more about us. They'll ask questions. And we'll get the opportunity to tell them a bit about Jesus. And to point them to the evangelist, who will explain in even more detail. So this then is the basic concept. We want people to know how great Jesus is. And the best thing that you and I can do is to start living a life that surprises the world. Our current series is based on a book that goes by that name, Surprise the World. And in it, the author, Michael Frost, makes the case that the way to start living these lives that raise questions is by developing some good habits. Habits that send us out into our community. Habits are actions that we repeat again and again until they become second nature to us. They may be hard at first, but as we practice them, the new skills develop and our characters mature. And in his book, Michael Frost suggests five habits for us to adopt. And we looked at the first one two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we thought about how we want to be people who set out to bless others. Whether that be through words of affirmation, or an act of kindness, or the giving of a gift, we can demonstrate something of the generosity and love of God. 
And when people see us doing these things on a regular basis, they'll want to know, well, why are you bothering? And we can tell them that we're trying to bless other people because God has blessed us. And he wants to bless them too. And two weeks ago, we were challenged to see if we could try and bless a few people each week. I'm not here to keep track on you or to give me your numbers of how many people you've blessed. But I hope that we've managed to have a go. And I encourage us to keep trying. This week, we're going to look at our second habit. And if we can enact this one in our lives, it too will raise questions in the minds of unbelievers and give us the opportunity to talk about Jesus. But before we get on to talk about this habit, I want to ask you a question. How would you complete the following sentence? The Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. Now there are three ways that the New Testament completes that sentence. And while the first two are known pretty well, the third one is a little bit surprising. In Mark 10, 45, it says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. A very well-known verse from the Bible. In Luke 19, 10, the last verse of the Zacchaeus story that we were thinking about with the children, it says this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I reckon there'll be some people in this room who have known that verse off by heart for years. But the third way that this sentence is finished is found in Luke 7, verses 34, and it's much less known. And it's this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. What? I'm sure there were some of us who weren't expecting that. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. But there's more. Listen to how this verse finishes. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now the Son of Man being referred to there is Jesus. In fact, it is Jesus himself who is speaking for all three of those quotes. The Son of Man was a, a figure from an Old Testament prophecy in Daniel. He was the one the Jews believed one day would come and defeat all of God's enemies and then would take up his reign over all the earth. And the first two verses tell us a little bit about how Jesus would achieve that feat. He would serve God's people with his life. He would pay the ransom price required to free us from our sin. He would seek out and offer salvation to sinners like Zacchaeus, you and I. But the third verse tells us a little bit of the manner in which he would seek out the lost. He would do a lot of that while gathered round a meal table. As Jesus ate and drank with people, 
He explained what was to come at the cross and the resurrection. And he gave his invitation to the eternal kingdom of God. So the second habit in our series is eating. Eating meals round a table with non-Christians. Let us think a little bit more about this Christ-like habit. The first thing I'd like us to notice from Scripture is that Jesus used the table to surprise people. In fact, I would go as far as to say that one of the most shocking things about Jesus was the people he ate with. As we saw from that verse in Luke 7, Jesus ate meals with members of the public so regularly his detractors accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Now Jesus was neither of those two things. But obviously his preparedness to eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes gave his enemies plenty of ammunition. Let me give you an actual example. In John 2, we read of Jesus beginning his public ministry. And he did it in a way that no Jewish rabbi would ever think of behaving. Jesus went to a wedding feast at Cana and provided the best wine imaginable when the previous wine had run out. The famous miracle of turning water into wine is a great example of the way Jesus used his table to surprise people. In performing that miracle, many of you will know it well, Jesus took six stone jars full of water. But these were not just any old stone jars. These were the jars that stored the water for the Jews to use while cleansing themselves. You see, whenever a Jew came into contact with a a dead person or a Gentile, a non-Jew, they felt as though they'd been a little bit contaminated. They were no longer clean. So they had to wash themselves and recite a few prayers as they did it to restore them into a good state before God. But in this miracle, Jesus took these symbols of separation between Jew and Gentile, between holy and unholy, and he filled them with wine. Now, wine, of course, would go on to become the great symbol of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. From now on, it is through his death on the cross that we are purified from our sin, not just from the splashing of water. But wine is also the the universal symbol of hospitality, welcome, fellowship. So here that his very first miracle in John's Gospel, Jesus uses his meal table, his sharing public life, eating and drinking, to say something very surprising. He's come to welcome all. Not to build up the boundaries between Jew and Gentile, but to knock them down. And of course in the Bible, Jesus goes on to enact this same theme over and over again. In Luke's Gospel, you can see particularly how Jesus used meals to say some very surprising things. 
It was at a meal table that Jesus accepted the worship of a sinful woman. She had a terrible reputation. She comes in and she pours oil and perfume on his feet while he's eating. And at that same meal table, Jesus criticised the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It was at a meal table that Jesus gave advice on how to welcome the poor into our lives. That's what we read from Luke 14 a little bit earlier. And then at the end of the gospel, again, it was at a meal table that the risen Lord Jesus, after his crucifixion, revealed himself to be Lord in a maze. They are to name but three, but I hope we get the point. Jesus used his table, the meals he ate, to surprise people, to shake them up from their prejudices and their stereotypes. And still today we can use our tables to break down walls that separate people in our community. Maybe we can invite people to dinner who haven't been on Isla very long. They don't know anybody yet. Maybe we can use our meal table to invite other Christians who maybe go to a different church or no church at all. We tear down what divides us and pave the way for a deeper friendship. Maybe we can invite people who others look down upon or criticise or particularly people who have no way of ever responding in kind. But we invite them for dinner to show generosity. We really can surprise the world by who we share our table with. And in his book, Michael Frost suggests that we might be radical socialisers. What a great thought. But to put it a more biblical way, how can we socialise with people in the ways that Jesus did? So the table can be a surprising place that gets people talking. Why are we breaking bread with them? But the second thing I'd like us to see from scripture is that eating with people also helps to foster community. Have you ever seen a couple sitting eating in a restaurant in complete silence? It seems a a little odd, doesn't it? I'm guilty of this myself at times and Emily hates it. The table is a place for conversation, a place for reconciliation, a place for talking. Eating is one of the foremost ways that we as human beings build relationships. Let me try and put that in another form. By sharing a meal with someone, by uniting round a table, we grow to understand them better and our friendships naturally deepen with them. And as we're learning throughout this series, it's then through those relationships that we have a chance to talk about Jesus. Now, we churchgoers can sometimes be creators of little holy huddles, can't we? We tend only to invite other Christians for dinner because we feel more comfortable with them. Sometimes we only invite certain other Christians, the ones in our little clique that we know best. But I think Jesus asks us to foster community with people who are less known to us. Some of them 
unbelievers. What was it Jesus commanded in our reading? When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't just invite your friends or your brothers and sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbours. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And you'll be blessed. In Jesus' day, people would never eat a meal with somebody of a different social standing to them. And they would definitely never eat a meal with someone from a different religious background. A Jew would never eat with a Gentile. But Jesus turned on his head again and again. He ate with the broken. He ate with the sinful. He didn't condone their behaviour. But he ate with them first to show friendship and then called them to repentance second. Commentator Ben Myers says of Jesus' presence at the sinner's table, he said this, Contact triggered repentance. Conversion flowered from communion. Conversion flowered from communion. What a beautiful expression that is. And that's exactly what we saw with Zacchaeus, which we did with the children. Jesus went into the home of a notorious tax collector, a cheat. And his kindness and his acceptance of hospitality led Zacchaeus step by step to a place of repentance. Jesus built the relationship while eating and then led him to conversion. What a wonderful story. Now, of course, we are not Jesus, but we are called to try and do what he did. We are called to act in as close a way as we can. It's not always easy to socialise with non-Christians. I know it's hard. I was trying to do it last night, and it is difficult at times. But if we do it prayerfully, we'll be surprised how God uses it. So the table can surprise people, it can foster community, build relationships. There's one other thing I think the Bible shows us about the way meals can be used in the way that Jesus used them. And that is that the table can be used to teach about what Jesus did. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus gave his disciples a practice to remember him by, it was the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. He gave them this incredibly powerful teaching aid in the form of a meal. Today, we celebrate communion in a very formal, a very liturgical way. But the first Christians celebrated it in the context of a banquet. In fact, if you read the accounts in Acts and in the history of the early church, the open meal table was what was at the heart of Christian worship. It wasn't the pulpit, because they didn't have church buildings back then. It wasn't the choir, it wasn't the band. It was the table. That's where they met and taught and prayed and sang. And still to this day, we can use our meal times to speak of Jesus, to declare what he has done for us. Most obviously of all, we can do this by breaking bread and drinking wine with our brothers and sisters. It's wonderful when we do that. We can do it here in church. We can do it at our meal tables at home. 
We can do it in simple ways by saying grace before a meal, particularly with our children. Maybe even a short Bible passage being read and talking about it as we eat. We can do it through conversation with our friends. Once those relationships are growing, at the meal table you become the place where you talk about your faith and what you think and who Jesus was and why you believe in him. What better place to try and speak of the invitation of God, of his grace, of his blessing, of the good news of the gospel, than round a table eating a meal like one day we will do with him in glory. Jesus did ministry like this, and we can try to give it a go too. So here is the second habit that we're being encouraged to try and adopt. As we try to intrigue our neighbours around us, we're to try and bless them, which we did two weeks ago, and we're to try and eat with them. Now, Michael Frost encourages us to try and share a meal with three people a week, one of whom's a non-Christian. Now, I'm not worried about the numbers, just that we give it a go. In fact, I include coffee and cake in this. And I know some of you go to the mini-market so many times a week, you do three in a day, let alone in a week. But if we could try and make the effort, not just to have that passing, oh, how are you doing today? But to sit down with them, share a coffee, share a cake, share a meal if you can. Not everybody has the time, but if you can, Make the effort to go that extra step because round the meal table you will share your life in a deeper way and naturally you'll get chances to talk about things that are more important and you'll get to talk about Jesus. Jesus regularly used the illustration of a banquet to describe the kingdom of God. Let's show our neighbours a little bit of what heaven is like by eating with them. And that is sure to raise a few questions. Let's pray together.